Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. <laughs> That's right. That's good enough. <laughs> oh boy. Let's dive in. Introducing Michelle. She's a cemeterian, she's a grief recovery specialist, and she's giving families legacy and hope. Michelle, welcome. So we connected because I asked my audience about morticians and being around death. And then someone in my community was like, I have the perfect person for you to talk to. So I would love <laughs> to start there. How did you get into hanging out with dead people? Well, it all started back in 1985 when I was in the 10th grade, and I decided to walk down to my neighborhood funeral home and ask them if I could come in because I'd like to find out a little bit more about what they're doing. And the main reason why I decided to do that is because my father is number 17 out of over 20 children, and I was raised pretty much going to funerals. So funerals and weddings, just back to back. So we have tons of family, you know, of course, still the family continues to grow. But the number of deaths that we were experiencing when I was young was off the charts because there weren't the medical advancements that we have now. So I walked in, the funeral director was very kind. And he said, you know, I'll teach you whatever it is that you want to know. And I was going to become a funeral director, but I guess destiny, you know, took me on a different route. What did you want to know? I wanted to know primarily what was the deal when it came to funerals. Some funerals were more grand than others, and some were more modest. And I wanted to know what that was all about, because I really wanted to make sure that everyone, whether they were alive or whether they were passed on, that they were memorialized with dignity and respect and honor. So that was, that was huge for me. And then I also wanted to know about the death process itself. So what happens when someone dies? What happens to their body? What happens in the family? What's that family dynamic like? I know we're helping people through this process, but different people experience death different ways. Of course, each person's journey through that experience is unique. No two are the same. But I really wanted to know what all that was about. Me too. What happens to the body? Well, <laughs> of course, there's no brain activity, there's no breath, and the body is flesh, so it starts to decompose. And what are the different things that you would do in order to preserve the body is something that I was interested in too. So initially, I started out, you know, the beautiful thing is that when you're allowed to look on, you see whether or not you have the guts to go the distance. Now, looking on is one thing, but being hands-on is something totally different. So I had the opportunity to, and I can go ahead and say this now, because the people that I worked with have actually passed on themselves. 
So I had the opportunity to be hands-on. I have to say, working on adults was perfectly fine for me, but when it came to working with young people, like babies, that was a concern for me. So that was sort of like a turning point for me, and that's one of the reasons why I didn't become a funeral director. Instead, I became a cemeterian. I'm the former managing director of several historic cemeteries, and on average, annually, I would lay approximately 1,800 people to rest. And if you do the numbers, that is like a well-oiled machine that just constantly goes. I was meeting people on the worst days of their lives and helping them through the process of laying their loved one to rest. You know, to some, you, you felt like family to them. To some, you were simply performing a service. And then to others, yet and still, you were sort of counseling them through the process. And I remember one gentleman in particular, his wife was laid to rest, but he would come back to the cemetery on a regular basis, like every single day. But he's a standout in my mind because he was one person that did not want to recover from his grief. He could not recover from his grief. And that actually led me to become a certified grief recovery specialist. After I laid him to rest specifically, I said to myself, I have got to do something about people not being able to properly go through the process of having this experience of losing a loved one and not being able to rebound from it, not being able to bounce back from it and not bounce back as if it's a simple process to bounce back, but go through the proper action steps that it takes in order to be able to recover from grief. Wow. So much of what you just said, I kind of want to go back to one, the fact that you come from such a large family. Your dad was number 17 out of 20. I don't think I've known anyone to come from that large of a family. It's huge. And so for example, when I'm on social media, and I may say to someone, you know, oh, hi, cousin, or that, that person is really my cousin. <laughs> no play cousins. That person is, is really my cousin. And most of them, thank God, are, are still, you know, on that front line, like that first generation of cousins without going to second cousin or third cousin. We're all grateful for social media because it helps us to stay in touch with one another, to get a sense of what they're going through, good, bad, or indifferent. We wanna celebrate birthdays, we want to celebrate wins, and we wanna be there for one another when times are tough. It's because of my family that I have decided to work in the, the grief industry, and I'm also a trauma healing facilitator. I'm an end-of-life doula, I'm a member of the board of directors for the National End of Life Doula Alliance. I'm also a member of the Hospice Foundation of America and a member of the Home Funeral Alliance as well. Mm -hmm. My gosh. Yeah, we need to, I think, define end of life doula because I think that's not such a common term for everyone. Mm -hmm. An end-of-life doula is a non-medical professional that supports the family and the dying through the death process. And that person is in the room to 
assist the family with some of the paperwork that they may be in need of, of filling out, processing, to be that liaison between them and medical professionals, to walk them through the process of what to expect when a person is losing their life, and also to be able to pay tribute to the life and to treat the person with honor and respect and to remember that this person is still alive. So we want to create some type of tribute with them so that when they do transition, they are able to do that with peace. And we also help the family as well to be able to find some sense of peace of mind as their family member is going through this process. I know the first time that I decided to become an end-of-life doula, well, I went through the process with my stepdad. And then when my mom passed, I said, okay, this is it. I am definitely doing it. With my dad, because I had been in the death care industry for so long, he got to the point when he was suffering from cancer where he said, I don't want any more medical procedures. I want to go home. And it pretty much started at that point when he said, I want to go home, that I started making his last days on earth as honorable as possible, providing him with everything that he wanted, needed, and not necessarily material possessions, but things that would set right in his soul. So my stepdad is a country boy, <laughs> or was a country boy, and he was from North Carolina. And um, on our way home from the hospital, my mother allowed him to ride in the car with me, so I drove him home from the hospital. And an end-of-life doula really wants to be impactful when it comes to not leaving anything undone that that person may have wanted. So that day is actually, or those days are actually custom made for that person. And when we got in the car, I put on James Taylor. In my mind, I'm going to Carolina. And I tell you, it sort of opened up the floodgates for him to feel more alive, for him to you know, have memories triggered so that he could feel more of himself instead of feeling like he was at the end of you know his earthly life. I just stayed by his bedside with him, gave him his medicines on time, prepared some meals for him. Of course, my mother and my sisters and my brother were there as well assisting. And it's not something that happens overnight, of course, but we were dutiful in making sure that we spent quality time with him at the end. And he didn't want to be resuscitated. My mother made certain that she told everybody not to resuscitate him if he passed because this is what he wanted. Well, it just so happens that I wasn't there at the time when he did stop breathing. He was at the end. And sure enough, my mother, his wife, for you know so many decades, as soon as he passed, she started doing CPR on him and brought him back <laughs> because this is her husband. This is the love of her life. 
And even though she said to everyone, don't resuscitate him, it's that natural inclination to want people to live and to not want to accept the fact that, you know, it's come, this time has come for this person. An end of life doula sort of helps the family in that regard as well when the person has taken their last breath, just to be a comfort and a support to the family and then to help them to be able to navigate their way through some of the things that they that people don't typically think about when it comes to end of life. That's such a great example of you saying, you know, one person didn't want to resuscitate and the other person wanted to save them. Like, I feel like that has to be a common situation. Oh, it definitely is. And, you know, when it comes to the end of life, you really want to get the dying person's wishes understood to the entire family. And then as far as directives are concerned, and being executors and executrixes and power of attorney and things, you want someone that's going to carry out your wishes. When we pass, we really want someone who is going to follow our lead, whatever it is that we say, because after a person passes, even though you have these wishes, the family doesn't necessarily have to abide by them. So when selecting a power of attorney or someone who is entrusted to make sure that all of your wishes are taken care of, you really want to select a person that is aligned with you that will do what you ask them to do. And then one of the most important things too is to have a backup just in case <laughs> that person is unable to do what you ask them to do. How do you even find that person? Well, these people are the closest people to you. So for example, when my mother passed, she has four children, me, I'm the youngest, and I've always worked in the death care industry. And I was the person who was responsible for taking care of her arrangements, mostly. I made sure that a lot of things were taken care of well in advance of need, which is super important, especially when you have more than one child. <laughs> so you choose the one that is best suited for whatever tasks you need. So for example, with me, we had already selected her final resting place. We had already selected the engraving that she wanted on her headstone even, but she wanted cremation. And before she passed, of course, we want to have those important conversations. And not only do we want to have those important conversations with the important people who are responsible for taking, for carrying out all of the plans, but we want to put them in place. We want to put them in writing and we want the people to be aligned with what we need them to do. So my mother had a power of attorney. She had a backup power of attorney. Everything that she had, she had a backup for it, just in case that one kid didn't want to do it, was incapable of doing it, or was indifferent. You know, nothing is perfect, but the beautiful thing is that she knew who was able to do what. And as the youngest, I said to my mom, oh, you definitely have to put this in writing because I'm the youngest and I already know we're going to be walking into the funeral home and my siblings are going to look at me like mommy didn't want that. So guess what? Let's put it in writing. Uh, she even actually wrote her own obituary 
which was beautiful and loving, and we only needed to tweak a few things, but she took care of some of those difficult things that things that people find difficulty wording. Can you literally just write this on a piece of notebook paper or does it need to be done with a notary? When it comes to arrangements, we really want people to know what is involved in all the arrangements, what is actually going to be needed. And the beautiful thing is that nowadays people can put these things in place long before they need them. So we definitely would like to have it notarized, whatever it is. It doesn't necessarily have to be notarized. For example, if someone's going to write their own obituary, which I've already written mine too, if you're going to write your obituary, that doesn't necessarily need to be notarized at all. But for things like a will or a living will, it would be nice if they were notarized, but it's not necessary at all. I cannot believe you've written your obituary. Can we talk about that? Sure. I wrote down that I won the Nobel Peace Prize, but I don't, <laughs> I don't know if that's going to stick. <laughs> oh my God, that's awesome. I'm also super curious about some of the people that you have probably seen who have had terrible endings. Yes, that's where a healthy dose of compassion comes in. I'm grateful to have had the life experiences that I have had because it makes you a gentler person, you know, it makes you a more compassionate person and it helps you to be able to empathize with people and yet still be the professional in the room. I created this boutique company because I needed to make sure that people felt supported when they went through an end of life experience or if they needed bereavement care or grief and trauma, healing and support. It really helps when you take the best that you have and you do the best that you can by people. You know, ultimately my philosophy in life is that we want to celebrate life and live every day to the fullest and leave nothing undone or unsaid and to be authentic and true and love deeply. We sometimes see people that are on autopilot and they're living life as if they didn't just have a traumatic experience or that the um, memories that they have from an experience that they wish they hadn't had is still with them. And when people sort of, you know, or just on autopilot, they have these stirbs or these short-term energy relieving behaviors that they start that do not work. And some of those short-term energy relieving behaviors are things like overindulging in food and drinking alcohol and taking drugs, isolation, you know, sex, shopping, becoming a workaholic even, and neglecting their physical health. So there's a lot of different things. Even procrastination can be a STIRB, a short-term energy relieving behavior. It's really anything that would take you away from the reality of your situation. And we want people to have healthy ways of coping with stress instead of using these things that simply just do not work. Speaking of stress, have you seen lawsuits or investigations into any of the bodies that you've worked with? Oh, most definitely. <laughs> We've had to, you know, open up some things in order to get DNA 
you know, opening up crypts where the person has been there for, you know, 20 years. The same way that we inter people, there can be disinterments as well, meaning that most people think that once you put a casket in the ground that it, it stays there. And the answer is 99.99% of the time, we definitely leave the casket there. But sometimes there are reasons for disinterments, which is very skillfully and carefully done the same way that laying someone to rest is done, would disinter that casket, meaning that it would be pulled up. And being the family service director for several cemeteries, this was my responsibility in order to manage through that process. Working there is like seeing a duck on water. You know, it's smooth sailing, even the life of a funeral director. You would think that because of the way that they appear, that everything is simple, but it couldn't be further from the truth. We're just here to be able to guide people through the process of these experiences that can trigger grief and stay with us for the rest of our lives. We just want to help you through that process. Have any of these stories stayed with you? Definitely, because sometimes we have to realize that, especially in today's struggles, our end of life or death care workers are just human beings. You know, our frontline workers are just human beings. Our essential workers are human beings. And it is devastating to some when you have to help a family through the process of doing something like, for example, preparing arrangements for an eight-year-old who is still alive but won't be for long. Or something that you've seen that's devastating in the news and then, you know, you come in the next morning and that family is sitting in front of you. These things have happened to me countless times, countless times, so much so that years ago, I would just, instead of talking about it, I would come home with the newspaper and just put it on the dining room table. And that was like a sign that I needed a minute or I needed to spend some time decompressing. Well, I won't tell you about this specific experience, but Sometimes people actually kill themselves at the cemetery. So they may be visiting a loved one's grave. So I have happened upon people with firearms, people that have decided to take their own lives, you know, on days when I have other services going on, you know, as well. So you have to section off that area. And it's difficult for people who are coming to visit to then be turned away and say, no, you cannot visit today. But then to be able to call all of the people that need to come to do an investigation, tow trucks to come and tow away the vehicle that the person drove on site, and then to clean up, you know, afterwards, then to be able to talk to the family after that happens as well because if this is his family cemetery or her family cemetery, then nine times out of 10, that person is gonna be buried there too. And having found individuals, the family wants to then talk to you because they weren't there when it happened or they weren't the first people on the scene. Life is stranger than fiction, let's just say that. 
everyone should be prepared to handle it with proper conduct. One thing that you said earlier about your stepdad and talking about setting right his soul before he died, I wrote that down. That is such a beautiful notion. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, um, he was so worth it. Let me just tell you, his name, Thomas Jefferson, which is kind of funny, but at the same time, that was his name. He was quite a, a jovial man. He was you know, always smiling. And he was a person that, you know, loved a good cocktail and would talk about life. But with him talking about life, it helped you to stay in the present moment. It helped you to ponder how you're going to go through this journey. And then, you know, when you're at the end of the journey, we really want to be able to look back on our life and say, okay, this was a good run, or I'm going to clean some things up right now and give that person an opportunity to really feel like this is a journey, this is a transition, and what's going to happen next. Because when I think about helping people through this process, there's a lot of different religions out there, right, in the world. But I have yet to happen upon any religion that doesn't teach some type of existence after a person passes. No matter if it's, you know, purgatory that a person goes to or heaven or whatever the situation is, there's always somewhere that you're going, (laughs) right? So, and then we also have the experience of people that are getting ready to pass that we've heard stories about will not pass until they have seen a specific person or they have done a specific thing. So we want to ask them those questions. I I remember when my mother was getting ready to pass and she called my office and said that my mother had um, stage four ovarian cancer. And you know, instead of being a little more well thought out, I decided to resign from my job. I was like, that's it. I'm spending time with my mother every waking moment with my mother. So I was the one who was able to take her to all of her doctor's appointments. And it was no easy task, you know, helping somebody with cancer up and down the steps, carrying oxygen tanks, scheduling appointments, getting her in and out of the car. It was just a task. I wouldn't trade anything for that. And I knew that I wanted to spend all the time that, you know, we had left together being in the present moment and just grateful to have that time with her. Once we were in the hospital and we realized that her veins just could not take on any more chemo, or anything. And it ended up that her veins were so brittle that, you know, the medicine ended up just in a pouch in her skin, like just under her skin, because it could not go through her veins. She was quiet as a church mouse. And I was quiet as a church mouse. And we just looked at each other and we knew that the end was near. And we drove quietly home and then she needed to go back to the hospital. She wouldn't do anything without me. I remember being with her all day long and then going home just to change my clothes and then the hospital calling me 
and saying she needs to go to a different hospital and she won't make a move without you. So I got back in my car, I went down and that ambulance ride from one hospital to the next, I could see in my mother's eyes, who was a very vibrant, outspoken, fun-loving, cheerful person. I could see fear and I could see that she was just nervous. And we just held each other's hand in the hospital and we brought her home you know, eventually we brought her home from the hospital and she had a few visitors. She was very selective about her visitors. But when we brought her into her bedroom, which is the same bedroom that her parents slept in and her grandmother slept in, we knew what type of joy we could bring her by just redoing her bedroom. So we decided to redo her bedroom with all of these big floral patterns. She was one of those people that loved flowers. So bedspread, pillows, all of this foo-foo stuff. When she got into her bedroom, she was ecstatic. We had everything that she could have wanted and it, she was at peace. And at the end of her life, when I asked her mother, what would you like to do? She had the nerve to say, Michelle, I'd like to pay my bills. And I thought that was the strangest request, but I said, okay. So she couldn't turn on her back. She couldn't sit up. She was on her side. So I got a clipboard and got her checkbook and got her bills and she wanted to pay bills. Now, mind you, she was a woman that would pay bills at the beginning of the year. She would just throw like, you know, $2,000 on the phone bill and then let the company, the, the utility company, just work from the amount, that she, the surplus that she put on that bill. I don't know anybody else that would want to pay bills on their deathbed. <laughs> You'll never die and all of your pill, bills are paid up. But that was a lesson to me. And it was so beautiful that it, you know, it stayed with me. She passed in 2010. I miss her every day. Wow. I'm so sorry. I absolutely love that story though. What a beautiful memory. <laughs> I actually wanted to ask you, are you afraid to die? I am not. I feel like I have, first of all, lived a very good life. And secondly, I've loved deeply. And everyone that is in my life knows how I feel about them. I'm just here for the ride. I might not be here for a long time, but I'm here for a good time. <laughs> no, I'm not afraid. I've equipped my children with a sense of independence and self-sufficiency. I've given them wings to fly and roots to come back to. It's funny because my dad usually gives advice at the end of this show, but I feel like maybe you could give him some advice because <laughs> he has been taking care of his mother my grandma, who just turned 92 for the last five weeks. And it's been a crazy year. She's had a stroke. You know, she's had a previous heart attack. Her memory is starting to go. She's been in and out of having care. She's definitely starting to say things like, I'm just taking it a day at a time. And every day you wake up, is truly a blessing. Like, I think she's starting to come to terms with knowing that mm -hmm. it's getting towards the end. 
Yes. Well, you know, what I would say to him is that grief is normal and natural. And it is actually the normal and natural reaction to a loss of any kind, especially when it comes to our mothers, because we were attached to them through the umbilical cord. So we were attached to them. We got separated from them. But when we lose them, no matter how short a period of time that we've had them or no matter how long we've had them, the reaction to loss is grief. And then grief is also the conflicting feelings caused by the end of or change in a familiar pattern of behavior. He's used to waking up, communicating with his mom, and one day that won't happen anymore. He will be experiencing loss. And then the, the biggest one is that grief is the feeling of reaching out for someone who has always been there only to discover that when you need them one more time or you want to talk to them one more time, that they are no longer there. So he will understand that he's going through grief. He's going to have sometimes, you know, triggers, triggers that are going to remind him that he doesn't have his mother anymore. But as a society, we're taught to accumulate things, to save things, to keep things. We are never taught how to let things go and how to accept loss and how to properly work our way through coping with loss. So I think just you asking that question and saying that he's typically the person that would do this or that, you know, we want to know that, you know, when the time comes for any of us to pass on, that our loved ones will have the opportunity to properly memorialize us, spend time thinking of us in quiet contemplation, and understand that even though a person passes on, it doesn't mean that we have to stop loving them. We'll just love them in a different way. That's really beautiful. How do you let go? We don't have a choice when it comes to letting go. We don't have a choice in, in having to say goodbye because life changes, you know, life goes on. And when it comes to saying goodbye, we want to be transparent. We want to be honest. We want to lament. We want to be able to just say, this sucks. This sucks, but I can't accept what is reality. And then also know that each person's journey is unique to them. Your journey isn't over. That's their journey. So you can move forward honoring their memory and you can take them with you and you can, you know, throughout your own journey in life and you can celebrate the fact that they were here. You can. How do you celebrate your loved ones that have passed? I talk about them. I, you know, just like I talked about them a few minutes ago, if I could show you a picture of my mother, I definitely would or my stepdad, because he just thought that he was the cat's meow. And <laughs> he was tall and, and very good looking. That's how, you know, we work our way through cherishing their memories, honoring them, taking them with us throughout life, and talking about their lives. One of the things that my stepdad used to always say was automatic, you know, that was his favorite word. And then one of his phrases that he told me that is like so simple, but so profound is that, Michelle, if it's not right, 
it's wrong. My dad is going to love that line. If it's not right, it's wrong. I cannot wait to hear what he says to that. Yeah, it's just That's, as easy as that. It's a good one though. I love it. So tell me what's coming up for you. Well, I am the president of the Philadelphia chapter of International Association of Women. That is a, an international networking organization. Now I have an e-chapter event that's coming up and that event is titled Silver Linings. So with this quarantine that we're experiencing, it's difficult sometimes for people to wrap their head around everything that's going on because, you know, as a society, we're so ill-equipped to deal with, you know, this grief and trauma that we're all experiencing. So with this e-chapter event, we're going to be talking about celebrating silver linings and looking ahead to the future. If you go on iawomen.com, it's going to take place on November 4th at 12 p.m. and anyone can register. I registered. Awesome. <laughs> that's great. I can't wait. I think that that's a great subject matter, silver mm -hmm. linings. I love that. And if anyone wants to get in contact with me, they can find me on legacyandhope.com. And if someone, you know, would like to have a, a complimentary 30-minute consultation if they're struggling with something, whether it's, you know, a loss that is the loss of someone's life or if they're dealing with grief, because keep in mind, there are intangible losses that we experience as well, like loss of trust, loss of safety, loss of faith. So I offer a 30-minute free consultation to anyone. You can go on legacyandhope.com or, you know, we can keep it rather simple. You can email me if you would like at Michelle. M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E, Thornhill, T as in Tom, H-O-R-N, as in Nancy, H-I-L-L, at LegacyAndHope.com, or you can simply send a text message to 267-225-2280. We don't want anyone to not receive the attention that they, they need regarding grief and loss. Thank you. That's really generous. I definitely am going to connect you with my daddy. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much, Michelle. This was amazing. Oh, it was my pleasure. And thank you so very much for having me. I cannot wait for my dad's response. Here we go. What a great interview with Michelle, Rena and Michelle. Very professionally done. And Michelle, your demeanor is really how any professional should talk and act. I was very impressed. And you gave me some wisdom points. I think if I could just sum up the couple of wisdom points real quick, is that one, a lot of times when people are at the end of life and you start taking all their things and distributing them all over the place. And I know a lot of people wanna do that while they're alive so that uh, they get handed out and they can see where it's going. But I noticed that when you do that, People think that they have done their business and it's okay for them to move on. But if you want to keep them alive, if you want to encourage them and give them a little further longevity, don't erase the things that they built and worked on and cherished their whole lives. Give them an opportunity to keep their things. I like what you said about get your family together 
and do it in a timely manner and make sure that it's in writing and where all the children understand what you want to do with your things or with your money. Because later in life, and especially if you've changed it two or three times, it's very clear that big fights can happen in family, especially over money and certain possessions. Even though you write things down, certain children aren't going to accept it unless it's their way and not necessarily honor their parents' legacy or wishes. That's what's happened in my case, where my parents have always trusted me a lot more than their three daughters. And of course, we ended up in a huge fight for many years and a very costly, terrible fight, which probably has permanent collateral damage to our family. And even though they knew and argued for different things, they only could think of themselves and not really preserving what their parents and their parents' parents' dreams, which went through them as well, and didn't really honor them because unfortunately there's a lot of people that still only think about themselves no matter what. And when a person is dead, they think they can carry on and say what they want to do, whether they like it or not. And as you probably know, you've experienced that as well. I like that other saying that if it isn't right, it's wrong. And the funny part is, is that I told my daughter that when you're dealing with customers, you're dealing with people, even when they are wrong, the customer is always right. You still have to be the professional and help them and steer them right and fix it or help them even when they're wrong. This giving away people's things, it's almost like you're erasing them in some degree to some people. My mom won't let me touch or move anything that's still in the house. I had sisters go through and take things even before she wanted to give them away. And it's just devastating. She feels like they've, they've stolen not only her things, but they've stolen part of her life. And none of us want to be erased before our time. I've done everything that I can to try to preserve my mom's health, but also her well-being and her mental abilities. That means you have to talk to them every day. You have to make them part of your life. You have to encourage them and have them still exercise, whether it's doing a few physical exercises, but mental aspect, talk about politics a little bit, talk about your business, talk about different hobbies that we all like to do. Keep them engaged also keeps that energy flowing. Encouragement is not only needed for your children, but later in life, we need the encouragement still, if not even more than the children do. It's my opinion, and I think you might agree with me on this, is that we also want to feel like the ride that we had, and especially that we dedicated ourselves for further generations. This is where that legacy question comes into play. Let us make sure that we carry on where we don't just pass on our money, that we pass on our wisdom, our love, so that we can show the next generation that they're going to carry on what they were taught from us and that we continue to try to make the world and our families a little better place and a little stronger for the future. Today's episode is sponsored by Rin10 Media. If you want to look and sound your best for a podcast of your own, you want to get in touch with Ren10 Media. When I first contacted them, Better Call Daddy was just a twinkle in my daddy's eye. And now, only after a couple months in, we're at like 50 episodes. Reach out to info at ren10media.co.za 
and use the subject line, Better Call Daddy. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show.